0: Welcome to Religiously Literate. I'm Jay. And I'm Ryan. Join us as we explore the diversity of religious belief around the world. How many temples did the ancient Israelites have?
1: Why do Jewish boys get circumcised? Why is the Prince of Egypt our favorite Exodus story? Stay tuned as we answer these questions and learn a little bit along the way.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today on episode nine of Religiously Literate. Um, it's kind of been a while. Uh, we've been sort of not as diligent with our recording. I guess we've been busy.
1: <laughs> yeah, you guess we have been busy. You are a full-time PhD student, and you also work. This is true. Um, and then I work well. The fall, I worked like sixty hours a week between. You know, we have a lot of programs we go on campus, so, and then I have another job, so it's been busy, which means there's not a lot of time for recording. But here we are doing our best I'm uh, gonna talk about something that I really enjoy even though I don't <laughs> know as much about it as like someone who's really into, is really into something should know but I,
0: I do think I, I do think that we know like a lot more about this tradition or we've spent a lot of time in classrooms learning about this tradition than we have any of the others we've talked about I think collectively uh, between the two of us
1: yeah I think that's true definitely for a grad school May, I think I spent more time in learning Hinduism in undergrad, but okay, yes, fair. for someone who initially wanted to st- study Hinduism and Arabic and then ended up studying sports, I have spent way more time in classrooms and grad school studying this tradition. So that's fair. Well,
0: should we tell um, everyone what we're doing today then instead yes, of teasing should. it? <laughs> sure, 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 sure.
1: Uh, so today we're talking about Judaism which is really old. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is. You're
0: not wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what I got. It's really old. <laughs> we haven't recorded in a while, people. You got to give us a break.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so tell us some facts about Judaism. Oh,
0: <laughs> something about Judaism. Something about Judaism. Um, my first exposure to Judaism was um, the Rugrats Passover episode.
1: Which is good. Great retelling. Not the most accurate, but, you know, they're babies. It is
0: is my second favorite Exodus story, which we'll get to our first favorite later. Um, Something else about Judaism, though, that we kind of talked about before we started recording. Because we do this thing where we talk about what we should say, and then we say it really nicely before we record. And then we record, and it just just gets jumbled up because we're ridiculous. Um, But one of the things we talked about was that Judaism, really, for... A lot of traditions in the world, and a lot of the traditions that we've talked about in previous episodes, Judaism is kind of a foundation um, for those traditions and for understanding those traditions. It's a lot, it it helps you to understand those traditions um, if you have even just a basic understanding of Judaism and the history of Judaism and where it fits in the history of those traditions, like Islam and um, Baha'i and. Uh, we will eventually get to Christianity. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. It's also just along those lines, such a huge part of Western culture, which seems kind of ironic considering that Jewish people are such a minority and collectively make such a small percent of the population. But the old Testament has so many influences directly the new Testament, but just in Mm -hmm. Western culture, it's utilized in so many ways. So, And it's really only talking about Jewish people or as they call themselves at the time, the Israelites. So I I do think it's important to kind of talk about it for anyone who maybe isn't as familiar with Western culture or if you are familiar with Western culture, but you want some insight into where things are coming from. Judaism is a really good place to start.
0: So how many Jews are there in the world, Jay?
1: Um, Not that many, which is not surprising. But I think considering the history of the Jewish people and the fact that they have constantly been persecuted, you would think that there were a lot more. but. Only 2% of the U.S. population, I think less than 1% of the world population, coming in at 14.6 million worldwide, which I, I don't... So yeah, not a lot. Yeah, not a lot. I'm trying to think... like There are 9 million people in the city of New York, so just a little more than New York is all the Jewish people in the entire world, which is not a lot. And there's a lot of Jewish people in New York. There are, so...
0: Or are there? Does it just feel like there's? Or enough? are there? Oh, you know, I could go to Google and find out.
1: Okay, we'll find out.
0: But what makes a person Jewish while I'm finding this out?
1: So this is controversial, actually. Um, it depends on if you are Orthodox. or I guess it just depends on what you believe. So the more Orthodox Jews and more traditional way of seeing things is that the lineage goes is passed through the mother. So if your mother is Jewish by birth, then you, by default, are Jewish by birth. But if your father was Jewish by birth, then technically you are not Jewish. This is where it gets tricky, though, because some movements, like, I believe, Reform and Conservative, it's okay Mm -hmm. if your mother was not Jewish. It also allows you to convert and still be considered the same status of Jews. Side note, though, it seems to be that in the post-Israelite time, after exile, which I will talk about, very soon. There was a brief period, particularly under the Roman Empire, where the faith was spread through proselytizing or getting converts, going out and seeking out converts. And people who converted were on the same status as people who were born into the faith. But then once the Islamic empire expands and most of the Jewish community is now under the Islamic empire, there's a switch and Jews are no longer allowed to convert people. I don't know if this is the moment at which the tide turns and suddenly we are designating specifically only people who were whose mother was Jewish and that makes you better than everyone else. I don't know when that starts up again, but it seems to be, at least during the Roman Empire, there, it didn't matter. Like, obviously it was important if your mother was Jewish, but people who converted, uh, I would assume Jewishness was not defined by just
0: having a mother who was born Jewish. I found out that it's a pretty high number, actually. Oh. Um, and as of 2014, 1.1 million Jews lived in New York City. Oh, wow. That's 2 million in New York State overall. So. Wow. That's actually really significant. Right. Okay. Considering there's 14.6 worldwide. Yeah.
1: That's a huge amount. I was like, oh, okay. Huh. Well, then. Right? Lots of Jews in New York City. Not an under or overstatement. Right. <laughs> I was not wrong. <laughs> no, you <it> weren't <laughs> Okay. uh, Is there any other facts we should share about um, Jewish people before we get into some history? Um,
0: Not that I can think of that's not going to just get us into the weeds of what we're going to say later. Okay,
1: cool. So I, as usual, we'll start with some history. The Jewish people believe that they are descendants of a Semitic tribe from Canaan. And according to the Bible, they are descendants of the patriarch Abraham. You may remember Abraham from Islam. As well as briefly discussed in the Baha'i Faith episode. Uh, so, Canaan is thought to be actually a pretty massive area that incorporates modern day Israel, Syria, and Jordan. So, fairly large area that we're talking about. And most of the history, at least ancient history, comes from the Bible, which Jews call the Tanakh. And we will get into what that means and all these a little later, but just that's kind of where the main source for the first part of this is coming from. And it's, but it is important to know that while this is a main source of the history, of the people that we now refer to as, as Jews, that the lives and practices of the Israelites, which is what the Bible talks about is drastically different from those who practice Judaism today. Uh, They do share some of the same beliefs, but the practices themselves are different. Even some of the beliefs are different. And a really good way of thinking about this is if you compare our friends in Hinduism to the Indus River Valley civilization versus modern day Hinduism. Some similarities for sure, but totally different. So just keep that in mind. But anyway, Abraham was a shepherd from the Mesopotamia. Mesopotamian city of Ur, and he kind of wandered with his flock throughout Canaan, and at some point, God promised him that he would be the father of a great nation. So most Jewish people, or I guess all Jewish people, <laughs> traced their descent uh, through Abraham's son, Isaac, and then his son, Jacob, who is also known as Israel, hence the name Israelites. But you may remember from our Islam episode that Abraham had another son, his firstborn, Ishmael, and this is who Muslims trace their descent through. So we have Abraham, who has his son Isaac, and then he has on the son Jacob, a.k.a. Israel. But for the sake of clarity, we'll stick with the name Jacob. So Jacob and his 12 sons settle in Egypt. And this is all great fine. Time passes. Their descendants become slaves in Egypt. And so this is all told in the book of Exodus in the Bible. But... What you need to know is our homeboy Moses, and I refer to him as our homeboy, outside of our alma mater, the University of Kansas, the religious studies building, there is actually a statue praying in front of the burning bush, which is a stained glass window. So we saw Moses every day and always referred to him as our homeboy. But anyway, he rescues the Israelites from Egypt and he is gonna take them to the promised land. But The Israelites get a little too excited and actually kind of scared. Moses goes off to Mount Sinai. They leave Egypt. They are safe. The Red Sea is parted. All is cool. Uh, Moses is like, hang out here for a little bit. I got to go up to Mount Sinai, have a little chat with God. You'll be good. Well, they freak out. And so (laughs) they immediately forget that God had just delivered them. Impatient. (laughs) that God had just delivered them and was going to protect them. And so they, I believe they melt down their gold, and make a cow. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, to the God of the Israelites, this is a false God. He becomes angry and says, you're going to not make it to the promised land for 40 years. You can wander around in the desert. Anyone who spent five minutes in the desert knows that this is awful. So 40 years must've been atrocious, <laughs> but as they're wandering around, before they get to Promised Land, some of the key parts of the of the faith really get codified here. So uh, according to the Bible, it's during this time that a lot of their ritual practice, practices come together. So for instance, they build a temple for sacrifices, uh, laws that regulate their daily life were kind of created during this time or told to them from God. And all of these things can be found in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, I will say as a side note, some scholars debate when some of this stuff was created. So was Deuteronomy actually created during this time? But we're not going to go into that because we're talking about what people believe, not what scholars say. So they're wandering around for 40 years. Some things are getting set up. They feel very confident in their faith. They know what to do. Well, after 40 years, they arrive in the promised land. And this is where I'm going to start glossing over a lot of things. I mean, I did gloss over quite a few things there, but it's really going to pick up now. (laughs) So uh, I will say if anyone wants to know the full history of the Jewish people, you can send us an email and I'll send you a reading list of several books that you can look at. We could put it in the show notes, but no one emails us and I want someone to email us. So yes. that's why I'm not uh, giving it to you. But in the promised land, they have some initial success. So they get over into Canaan and, you know, they are able to conquer some neighboring peoples. The thing is though, so God had promised them this land, but, They weren't the only people over there. So as I said, they conquered some people. They build a permanent temple where they're able to make sacrifices and worship God appropriately. But other than these kind of initial successes, they spend most of their time in war, either conquering their neighbors or trying not to be conquered themselves. So things are going well, and they realize for their own preservation that they need a king. And they're really reluctant to have a king, mostly because... The way that they worship God is God is their king, and there was some hesitation that if we make a human king, that we will upset God and it will detract from our worship to God. So there's a lot of intentionality in making sure that this is a human king that is not revered as a god, particularly in contrast to what many of their neighbors do. So they establish this monarchy, which actually only has three kings. There's Saul, the first king. King David, and then David's son, Solomon. David is not Saul's son. Um, so this happens. And then after Solomon, the kingdom, his sons get into some issues. So the kingdom splits. And so there's the south, which has the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and the north. And these tribes come from, again, if you remember, Jacob had 12 sons. Each of his son starts what is known as a tribe. And so these are where these 12 tribes come from. I won't say much other than that because that's kind of the end of the good part of the story. It's kind of downhill from there. (laughs) But I will say, I mean, it's true. The split is important though, because there are splinter groups within the Jewish faith that trace themselves back to this split, either in practice or ideology. Uh, So there is a group that from this split they believe I think they were part of the southern tribes. And they actually continue to do sacrifices and there is a mountain in Samaria where they go every year to do a sacrifice and like that is traced back to the specific split so it's it's kind of important in terms of some of the factor groups but also in in accordance with this split the this is officially the 12 tribes kind of separating and to this day Jews believe that One day, when the Messiah returns, the 12 tribes will be reunited. And for context, this split happens around 928 before the Common Era. So people have been dreaming about this reunification for a really long time. But uh, let's get back to the story. So they split, and then they immediately start getting conquered. And they get conquered by lots of people and lots of empires. Basically, every major ancient empire ruled this territory at some point. But the only two that you really need to know about are first the Babylonians, and that's because they destroy the temple. And as part of Babylonian practice, whenever they conquered a place, they would come in, sack it, and then the people who lived there were forced to leave and go somewhere else. So this is the beginning of the exile, and this is a turning point in terms of Jewish history because from this point on, there will always be Jews in exile. Once the they're forced to go, they're kind of out there. And then eventually the Babylonians are conquered by other people, including the Romans. And as part of, or, or sorry, I'm wrong. First, they're conquered by the Persians. And as part of Persian policy, you are allowed to be in your area. So the Israelites were allowed to return and they built a second temple that far exceeds the first temple. So things are really good. They're able to perform their sacrifices and please God. But then the Romans come in and they totally sack the place. And as part of their sacking, it is complete destruction. They rob the temple and take certain things from the temple to use for their own gods. So I should also note that this is like several conquests later. It's not just the Persians and the Romans, like other people come in and do things. And then eventually the Romans come in. I also would note that I have glossed over several revolts by the Israelites. But again, if you want to know them, let us know. I'll give you plenty of reading material. When the temple is gone, minus the Western wall, which still exists today, there's a major issue for the people because without the temple, the Israelites can't worship God properly. And from this kind of crisis of what do we do now, two things arise. First, we get rabbinic Judaism, which is, there are, group, there are different leaders in the community who had different names. One of them were the Pharisees, who were more learned class. They were very strict, and they're just very orthodox, as you could say. Well, they go on to draft what is called rabbinic judaism and which actually still exists the main form of judaism today is rabbinic judaism so they definitely are the foundations for what modern judaism looks like today we also get the rise of the synagogue so a lot there's a shift from this is part from the uh, rabbinic class there's a shift from doing temple or doing sacrifices every day at the temple and all these sacrifices that would be done and practices to shifting to life in a synagogue so the trans so one transfer is we stop doing sacrifices instead we have prayer. So you also continue to see to get a diaspora of Jews. So one thing to note is when they were exiled by the Babylonians, not all the Jews came back when Persia allowed them to come back. Some people just stayed where they were. So you already had little groups of Jews, just outside of Canaan, and now because there's no synagogue or sorry there's no temple for people to worship at. It's like why why should I go back? So diaspora really starts to happen and you no longer have a monolithic of Jews. Uh, They settle where they are and they try to live their lives. Um, The unfortunate part is that they would go to places, settle, live their lives. Oftentimes they were discriminated against since they had to wear specific clothes that would designate who they were, although they were dressing differently than anyone anyway, but you'd have to wear markers that you were Jewish. They were set in communities that were just for them. And they'd be doing fine. And then something would happen, either economic crisis or a rumor would go around, particularly among Christians, that Jews would use the blood of children for their Passover matzah. And so then the community would come in and slaughter them. And those who survived were forced to leave. And this is like a recurring theme throughout Jewish history. Uh, again, glossing over, but just a reality. They, as I said, they wore distinct clothing, but they also didn't do any work on the Sabbath, which set them apart from the rest of the communities. They lived in tight-knit communities, and you get a distinction between the group where they're no longer a monolith, where we develop what are called Askenazi Jews who uh, originate mostly in northern France, Germany, and Eastern Europe. They speak Yiddish. And then we have the Sephardic Jews who are living in Spain and Islamic countries, and they speak Lando. And this separation is pretty clear by the early 1400s. So I've clearly jumped significantly. I'm going to jump a little more. In Eastern Europe, there's a lot of slaughter going on, lots and lots of slaughter. It's a pretty continual. So the people there begin to worry that they aren't practicing Judaism correctly because God is supposed to protect them and deliver them. And when they messed up, and historically, that's when bad things would happen to them. So they're thinking, we aren't practicing Judaism right something's wrong. God must be punishing us. So they're trying to figure this out. And there's a leader who arises. His name is Baal Shem Tov. And he begins promoting a more righteous life in which every action is centered on God. And his ideas and practices spread. This becomes what is now known as the Hasidic or pious movement. And most of Eastern Europeans begin living this way. And that's kind of their form of Judaism that stays. Unfortunately, they were viciously attacked during the Holocaust. So a vast majority of them did not survive, but the Hasidic lifestyle does continue to survive, and mostly they are in the United States and Israel. should be known that little has changed about their way of life and beliefs uh, since when the uh, Baal Shem Tov's life, which was in the early 1700s. <clears throat> in contrast, Jews that were living in Western Europe Around the early 1700s, there was a lot of debate within these countries about whether or not Jews should be full citizens and whether they should have access to things. So again, they had been living in these small communities that were tight knit. They were isolated from the rest of the the rest of wherever they were living. They may act in trade or do certain financial things, but for the most part, they were like kind of by themselves, except for their work. So Western Europe's thinking, hey, we should do something about these people, actually notice see them as people. So, so the first time during the 1700s, they are given access to universities, public education. If It doesn't exist, but like education outside of the home that other Christians had access to. And this is the first time that they have access to education that is not completely Jewish. So we're thinking 928 B.C.E., to 1700s, they've only had access to Jewish education, which is really interesting. Uh, but because they begin to be treated like everyone else and they get exposed to other things, and that's not to say that Jews didn't practice science or philosophy or things like that. They definitely did throughout the medieval times, but it's kind of in their own communities. Uh, but this kind of, because they finally have access to other groups and they're seeing different lifestyles, this gives rise to reform movements. Uh, which would really kind of take hold once they move to the United States, but that's kind of the history of the Jewish people, so to speak. I know that that's like very broad, and I didn't talk about practice or anything. So we're going to talk about the specifics very soon, but that is how we get from Abraham to today.
0: Um, one thing I wanted to add to. To the last little point you were talking about with these various reform movements, because this is going to be really important for our listeners to remember as we talk about beliefs and practice and practices, mostly, but also beliefs, um is this idea that within Judaism, there is a lot of diversity in practice. um and we we've talked about this in other traditions too, um but Judaism is largely an orthopraxic religion. And so what that means is that basically it's less about belief and more about the things that you're doing, the ritual life, the way that you're living your life um, in relationship with the teachings of the religion. Um, And so that basically breaks down into three distinct contemporary divisions, um, which you've kind of talked about briefly. And just to like give a very sort of simple cut and dry way for people to remember this, um, these three groups largely became a thing or like they developed out of response to the Enlightenment, which is exactly what you're talking about in the 1700s. If you're familiar with the Enlightenment, this all these fancy European white dudes thinking about Different things in science and reason, and like you've got guys like uh Montesquieu and Rousseau, um, all the old white guys you had to read in Western Civ too Um, really boring, and yeah, but they all these new ideas about science and reason had a large impact on the way that Jews in Europe, in particular, thought about their religion, and so, like Jay was saying you know, this led to these sort of reactions to um, years of persecution and these new ways of thinking. And so these three groups break down into what are called reform, conservative, and orthodox. And the easy way to remember these is that the reformed Jews are largely acculturated. Um, they accepted the scientific perspective mostly give up on observing the commandments, but not totally. Um, they're, I guess they're less concerned with following them in the strictest sense. Um, then you have the Orthodox Jews, which Jay talked about um, briefly in terms of the Hasidic Jewish community. And these folks are groups that rejected Enlightenment ideals and instead decided to follow more strict observances of the commandments or the laws. And then this is kind of where it gets sort of confusing. So the conservative Jews are the sort of middle ground Jews um, in terms of observance of the teachings of Judaism. And so tradition is important for conservative Jews. Um, so there's much more adherence to the commandments than say in reform communities, but they're still also much more open to change over time. So, I guess we can move to beliefs now. Yes. So Judaism is yet another monotheistic tradition. Um, It is also another tradition that has a very nice little statement of faith, which I appreciate because it makes talking about these sections very easy. (laughs) Um, So the basic profession of the faith. Wow. I wrote of the face in my notes. That's really sad. (laughs) The basic profession of the faith is called the Shema and translated into English. It's hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Basically it's saying that the Jewish God is for the Jews. And that is the only God. And that's pretty much the gist of Judaism. So we're done now. (laughs) Thanks for listening. (laughs) Um, Um, That's not true. So, so going back to what I was saying before about Judaism being a more orthopraxic religion, um, that the whole life of Jews, for the most part, revolves around the practicing of biblical commandments. So, if you are familiar at all with the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, which the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament are actually different, um, which our a former professor of ours would be so upset if we didn't mention this. Um, so I don't. I, I feel like we mentioned this in a previous episode about how Bibles are organized. Um, and one of the big differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the terms of organization. Um, so the Old Testament is, orga- is takes certain books in um, the Hebrew Bible and reorganizes them to sort of create like a prequel to Jesus and his birth. So just a fun note, but in the Hebrew Bible, like Jay was saying before, there's a collection of commandments, and these are basically just religious rules or religious laws that God has laid that the Jew, that the, that God has laid down for the Jewish people, um, and these are called mitzvot, and there are 613 of them. So when we talk about different groups deciding to follow or not follow certain commandments, we're not talking about like we're not deciding to follow four or five things. We're deciding like, oh, there's 613 of these things that we get to decide whether or not we're going to follow. Um, And so that really distinguishes the different groups today. And so these commandments are all included and then interpreted in a massive body of Jewish scripture and literature. Um, So the basic, um, the most basic piece of Jewish scripture is the Tanakh, which includes, it's which the Tanakh is actually an acronym for the, the uh, sections or the types of literature that are within it. Um, so the first is the Torah, which is made up of the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible, um, the, the first five books of Moses. Um, that's, you know, those are, those are the five books. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Was I right? That's right.
1: Uh, yeah, that sounds right.
0: Right on. Um, Then the Nevi'im, which are the prophets, and the Ketubim, which are the writings. Um, There's also this massive body of literature that interprets um, all of the commandments because these commandments were made 2,000 years ago. We have to decide how they work now. Um, And so this is included in the Midrash. I forget how the Mishnah is different, Jay.
1: So the Mishnah is—it's a lot of legal laws that are more specific than I think. It's just in—it's laws that are included in Deuteronomy, I think, but even more laws. So there, there are actually six parts to it, um, and I can break those down for you. So the first one is Seeds, which is agricultural laws. Then there's Fixed Seasons, which are laws about the Sabbath, festivals, and fast days. That's followed by Women, which is a section on marriage and divorce. Damages include civil and criminal law, and then there are holy matters, which uh, addresses sacrifices and rituals of the temple, and, and cleanliness, which are laws of purity. And the, this is made up of uh, what's broken into what are called tractates, and then those are broken into chapters. So there are 63 tractates and 523 chapters. The ninth. Tractate date is a collection of rabbinic sayings and ethical advice so that's why they say it's mostly legal parts i guess it has more than yeah it's mostly legal um but this one section is actually not legal and this one section is actually often included it's like a part of this but it is that part is taken out and often put in prayer books so that's what makes it thanks different. jay
0: mm-hmm Um, And then the last part of Jewish literature is called the Talmud, which is essentially the most central part of rabbinic literature. Um, It contains basically all of the rabbinic teachings of what's called the Oral Torah. So it's the written form of the Oral Torah. Um, And the Oral Torah is trying to find an easy way to explain this um, is basically all the rabbinic teachings that have been passed down since Moses, according to Jews um, that every rabbi has ever said, essentially.
1: Yeah, or I would say every influential rabbi.
0: Every, yeah, every influential rabbi. True.
1: True. I do want to say, going back, just to give a little bit of context. So after the fall of the second temple, there were a group of scholars. Wow, group of scholars that were called the Tannaim, and they developed a legal tradition. During this time, so, when it should, so that's where we get the Mishnah. But they also determined oh, okay. the canon of the scripture, regular daily prayers, and the system of rabbinical ordination, as well as the transferring of temple rites to the synagogue. They were also preoccupied with Midrash, which is interpretation of the biblical text. But then their successors, which were the Amoraim, I think. I'm probably saying that wrong. They're the ones who created the Talmud. And there's two Talmuds. There's the Palestinian and the Babylonian one. And that's basically just where they were mostly produced. One was produced in Palestine, one was produced in Babylon. Babylon, But the Babylonian one is the most authoritative. So when you're looking something up, if you're looking up a passage or you're talking about something, I don't know, uh, daily prayer, I guess, you would go to both. And if they if they don't agree, then you default to the Babylonian
0: Talmud. And that's all I got. Yeah. Cool. Right on. Clearly Jay likes the scriptural stuff more than I do. <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> I guess we can move on to practices now. Okay. Cool. You can start. All right. I'm excited. This is fun. So. All right. So Jewish practice and Jewish life is centered around a rich ritual tradition. Um, so pretty much every major part of an individual's life is marked by ritual. Um, important times of the year are marked by time of by ritual practices, and so that's kind of how we're going to talk about. Jewish practice. And keep in mind that, like I said before, there's a lot of variation within Jewish practice. And I feel like I'm a broken record because I say this like every episode, don't I? Um, <clears throat> that there is this massive variation. And so I definitely tried to condense this down into the most basic ideas and feel free to jump in, Jay, if I miss something or you want to like throw in a specific example. Okay. Um, so at first, I want to start with individual um, individual life cycle rituals, um, and then we'll go into talking about more community-based rituals. Um, so the first one is everybody's life starts with being born. Um, and so at birth, um, or at least eight days after birth for boys, um, boys are circumcised um, to basically create a visible sign of the covenant. Uh, between them and God uh, this was first done by Abraham in the Bible um, and he was an adult when he circumcised himself if I'm correct, right? Mm-hmm. yes um, which that's traumatic um, <laughs> and um, well, you know there's some people who convert and uh, have this done I, I, as adults. I, yeah, i'm I'm aware um, yeah, which good for them <laughs> um, but so this circumcision is, a symbol of this covenant, which is basically underneath everything underneath all of these rules and commandments is essentially what rules all of Jewish life, which is this covenant between the Jews and God. Basically this agreement that the Jews are going to live their lives the way that God commands them to. And in turn, God will protect them and take care of them and make them prosper. Um, And so this for boys is the visible symbol of that. Um, And so it just involves this is a standard circumcision it involves <clears throat> the removal of the foreskin of the penis and this can be performed by a medical professional but it's often performed by a mohel um and this is a religious figure I don't know are they always rabbis jay do you know I do not know um, all of my knowledge of it has
1: always been a rabbi but I'm not sure That's if kind of, to yeah be that's
0: yeah that's kind of what I thought too I always heard it was but maybe not um, but basically, this is someone who has both the religious and the medical knowledge necessary. There's also this really cool, like, I don't know if it's really cool, but there's like a whole um, sort of toolkit that Moils use, and they have like special tools to protect the testicles and like all of this, like during the procedure, um, which is interesting. Oh. Hmm. But also, if you have a girl, um, you don't need, obviously don't need to be circumcised, um, but The father It's pretty common for Jewish fathers to read the Torah at the next synagogue service and then officially announce the daughter's name. So basically in the in both of those, essentially what's happening is the baby is being presented as a member of the Jewish community. Um, The next we have the coming of age ceremony, I guess we can call it that, um, which I think a lot of people are probably familiar with this one, too. this is called the bar mitzvah or the bat mitzvah. Um, so, bar mitzvah means son of the commandment. Bat mitzvah means daughter of the commandment. Traditionally, this was only, um, or historically, this was only done for boys. Uh, but now, in the last couple hundred of year a couple hundred years since these reform movements, certain communities have started to have to practice the ceremony for young women as well. And basically what this does is at 13 years, at 13, um, children are um, considered able to fulfill the adult roles of any other member of the Jewish community who's also an adult. Um, And so basically this is preceded by a period of intense study of the Torah, which culminates in reading the Torah before the congregation for the first time, which this is a big deal to be in front of the congregation and reading the Torah. Um, and in the U S um, it's pretty common for this to be associated with a big party, sort of like a sweet 16. Um, I didn't f- I've never found or heard much of people of other Jewish communities in other parts of the world doing this or making as big of a deal as they do in the United States. Um, but if you've seen like pictures of little boys on the chairs and stuff getting held up above the crowd, like that's what we're talking about here. Um, maybe we'll find, I'll find a good video of a good, um, bar mitzvah and put it in the show notes. Cause I know there's some good ones, okay. um, for girls, the ceremony typically mirrors that of boys, but some congregations have developed their own rituals, um, for this. There's a lot of, um, I guess contention is the right word. Um, about the role of Jewish women in the Jewish community. And again, this varies a lot and pretty widely between different communities. Um, But I was just watching something about um, doing some research on something for the next episode. Um, And I was talking about just the role of women reading the Torah. Um, And so that comes into play here as well. Next, this is a really important Time in, I mean, it's an important time in pretty much everyone's life that gets married, but um, this is an important time for Jews because there's a lot of um, emphasis put on the importance of family and of children within Judaism. So this sort of is a wedding as representative of the creation of a new family unit is a big deal. Um, And so the sort of um, hallmarks of a Jewish wedding ceremony is that a marriage contract that is both legally and religiously binding is signed. It's called a ketubah, which is just a different marriage contract. And it's signed during the ceremony. Um, so it's not like the little one that you signed down at the courthouse. Um, and it's signed under a chuppah, which that pronunciation was probably bad. So forgive me. Um, but basically, this is a wedding canopy, which is set up sort of at the altar, like if you think about a traditional like American wedding, um, it's set up at the altar and it consists of a sheet and then like four poles um, that hold the sheet above the couple. Um, And sometimes this is just a standalone sort of um, thing. But then other times, actual members of the wedding party or like family members will hold up each of the uh, four posts. And this is seen as... Sort of symbolic of the home that the newlywed couple will be building, um, and then another thing that I think um, people are probably somewhat familiar with is the breaking of a glass after the end of the ceremony. So the after the ceremony's over, you've signed the marriage contract, the groom typically will break a glass with his right foot, and then the audience will say Mazel Tov, which means congratulations. Um, And I've heard a couple different uh, interpretations of why people do this. Um, One of the, at uh, KU, we had the uh, rabbi from the Chabad house come over and uh, guest lecture in a couple classes that I GTA'd. And he always talked about this in his lectures. And he said that um, basically his interpretation of it or the interpretation that he was familiar with was that this moment of joy and excitement as this new couple is getting married um, is also a moment to reflect on the fact that like in the world there is also suffering and that not everyone is having a good time right now and so this is a moment to like remember that and sort of as this sort of jarring um, you know sound of breaking a glass Um, i also read that um, it's pretty common now to not use a glass it's actually very common to use a light bulb because it makes a like, bigger, no- bigger noise.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: And because it's thinner glass, so it breaks easier.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but I thought that was kind of interesting. Also, some other um, interpretations talk about the destruction of the temple. It's like as a remembrance of the destruction of the temple, too. Uh, and lastly, um, in terms of the life cycle um, things, um, is death. And so when someone dies, the there's a lot of there's some pretty basic steps or like procedures to use that are used in terms of like preparing the body. And so the body is washed by members of the same gender and then clothed in a simple white shroud um, to sort of symbolize that everyone is equal as they come before God. So after the body's been prepared for burial, um, the burial is, it's assumed that the burial will be uh, carried out as quickly as possible. And this is often done without a viewing. So after the burial, there is a period of mourning for individuals who are close to the person who passed away. And so this is is broken into two periods. So the first is a seven-day period that includes a complete exclusion from social life. So the individual, the people don't go to um, work, they don't go to school, um, and they're generally cared for by the community. This is called sitting Shiva. Um, Then there's a 30-day period after the death where these mourners will uh, just continue to be in mourning, but they return to their um, regular social life, work, school, things like that. Okay, so now I want to move on to rituals that sort of um, schedule or sort of break down the community cycle. Um, So the first of these is the sort of most basic is this is the Shabbat, which is just a weekly Sabbath. And so this is the weekly recognition of this covenant between gods, between gods, between God and the Jews, between gods and the Jew. Weird (laughs) between, between God (laughs) and the Jews. Um, And this is a right sort of a recognition also of, how at the end of creation, God rested for a day. And so on the Sabbath, um, Jewish folks do not work. Um, And so the day is meant to be spent with God, with your family, with yourself. And this takes place on Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown. And so some Jews will participate in a synagogue service that marks the beginning of the Sabbath, but then others don't. Um, different kinds of activities are encouraged, um, sometimes like Torah study, also prayer. Um, back to our Chabad rabbi at KU, um, he talked about just spending lots of time with his family um, and he would like just hang out with them. And that was pretty much what he did. He spent the day just hanging out with his family. I remembered a fun fact about Jewish worship services yes. um, to actually have a, an official Jewish worship service. You have to have a, what's called a minion. Yep. Um, and a minion is just a group of at least 10 Jewish men. And so that, in, so that would include anyone over the age of 13 who's gone through the bar mitzvah. All
1: right. Talk, tell us about the calendar.
0: Okay. So yet again, we have a lunar calendar. Um, so The Jewish calendar is lunar. It follows the lunar cycle. So the months are either 29 or 30 days long, which is just determined by the cycles of the moon. Um, And so if you do the math, that year comes out to be a little bit shorter than... The calendar that we use and we can't remember the name of that calendar to save ourselves we talk about it so thank you <laughs> the gregorian calendar comes out a little bit short and so every so many years a 13 month is added to the calendar to compensate and so if you've ever paid attention on your calendar on the wall or on your phone calendar or your google calendar or whatever calendar you use if you have the uh like religious holidays on it and you pay attention to the jewish holidays they move throughout the year and so Some years, for instance, Hanukkah will be really early. Some years, Hanukkah is clear up by Thanksgiving. And then other years, Hanukkah is clear back by Christmas. Well, we should say that they move, but they don't.
1: They're not the same time. They're not the same day every year, but they're definitely in the same season. Right. So it's not like in Islam where Where Ramadan will be in the course of your lifetime in every month. Right. Passover is always going to be in the spring. Hanukkah's always going to be typically in december or very late november right like that's right, not changing right. but the actual date may be
0: different yes so with that in mind um let's start with the beginning of the jewish year which is rosh hashanah so this is the jewish new year this typically falls in september or october um and it's not like the sort of secular or american new year where we get all excited and we drink a lot and we party and have a good time um it's actually a time of reflection Um, And so it's actually a period of a couple days, too. It's not just one single day. Um, And so basically, Jewish folks who observe Rosh Hashanah spend the day reflecting and contemplating the deeds that were done and undone in the previous year. Um, And so apart from that, the biggest thing about the new year is that it's marked by the blowing of the shofar, which is a ram's horn. Um, and that's just to mark the Jewish new year and it's compared, some people compare it to like the sound of it to be that of the, uh, wailing of the heart of the human race. And so it's about, it's, it's much more somber occasion, I guess, rather than the sort of jubilant, um, secular new year.
1: I will say that, um,
0: you do, it is a time typically you have apples and honey for Rosh Yeah, that's right. So that's a fun treat. Um, and then Rosh Hashanah is followed by Yom Kippur, which is just the Day of Atonement. And so, after you sat and thought about the things that happened over the last over the last year, um, you then spend the day trying to seek atonement for those things from God. And if you can, the people who you've wronged over the year.
1: Well, I will will say that. So this is a modern form of an ancient ritual where you would have taken several cows um, and sheep and had them slaughtered at the temple. Oh, really? And so this is now
0: transformed into we're not
1: slaughtering animals at the temple anymore instead we're having a day of atonement
0: one of the highlights of the Jewish calendar, because let me say right now, actually, that this is not at all a comprehensive list, just like Jay um, very much gave you the cliff notes version, a very good cliff notes version of Jewish history. Um, I'm giving you the cliff notes version of Jewish ritual life. Um, There are all kinds of cool holidays. Um, Simchat Torah is the coolest one in my opinion. Um, so if you want to know about Simchat Torah, since we're, since we're trying to get people to email us, um, email us and I will send you some cool stuff about Simchat Torah. Um, but so the next next holiday I want to talk about is Hanukkah, which I think everyone's probably familiar with. Thank you, Adam Sandler. Um, it's, this is the Festival of Light. Um, so this takes place, like we said before, either in late November or in December. And this commemorates the rededication of the temple after the Maccabean revolt in 160 B.C.E. Um, so basically, the story of this is the Maccabees. Who are they revolting against with the Romans? The Greeks. The Greeks. Thank you. So the Maccabees were uh, revolting against Greek rule. in um, Israel, and basically, after they defeat the Greeks, they go to rededicate the temple and they find out that there's only enough oil to be burnt in the temple lamp for one day Um, but they decide that they're going to burn it anyways and miraculously it lasts for eight days which was also the period it took to prepare and consecrate new oil for the temple Um, and so the lighting of the menorah on hanukkah is to commemorate this and so menorahs hanukkah menorahs hold typically hold nine candles so one candle in the center to light each of the other eight candles over the course of Hanukkah. Um, Hanukkah is from my reading much more popular of a holiday in the United States, or I guess it's much more an extravagant holiday in the United States. And that's due in large part to um, its overlap in the holiday season, basically. So it's close to Christmas. Um, And so it's not uncommon for American Jews to give gifts or small gifts throughout Hanukkah. It's not anything like what um, most average Americans do for Christmas, but um, it's sort of taken on some of those traditions as well. And I've noticed since moving to Columbus, there's a much um, bigger Jewish population in Columbus than there was in Kansas City, or at least where I was at in Kansas City. And there is Hanukkah stuff all over the stores out here, and it is really cool.
1: Yeah. i also say that the cool thing about Hanukkah is this is when you have latkes. Yeah. And so you'll have a lot of parties where people, I've been to several Jewish parties, basically just latke parties where people bring stuff. But the main thing is latkes, which are fried potatoes. They have been shredded. Um, the old fashioned way of doing it is taking it to a cheese grater and shredding it that way. You can also, if you're fancy, pop in in your shredder on the food processor. And then you have to drain them of the water and you add flour and egg and you fry them up. And then traditionally you would put either applesauce or sour cream on them. But they'll, but this is something that's done a lot. So while the emphasis on gifts isn't as huge in other places, emphasis on latkes is very large and they're like full out latka parties in communities in the United States, but also outside of the United States, Lakas are the thing that people go for, and that's because you're eating something in oil to commemorate the oil that was used in the menorah.
0: yeah, I didn't really didn't really add anything about the food stuff. We're gonna have to definitely talk about Jewish food traditions in our religion and food episode mm. because we haven't even talked about kosher. No, we didn't talk about, about kosher. kosher. We're an hour into this thing and we haven't talked kosher. <laughs> Well, you know what? We're going to talk Passover and then we're going to talk about kosher because we can't have an episode on Judaism and not talk about kosher. Okay, so the last the last big holiday I want to talk about is Passover. Um, so, like again, like we said before, this comes in the spring. This holiday, fun fact for all you Christian listeners, is why Easter moves every year. Um, so, Easter is determined by where Passover falls. And so... That's why Easter is never the same weekend. Um, And so basically what Passover does is it is a commemoration of the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. Um, The sort of cliff notes version is the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and Moses came and basically broke them out. Um, And as one of the um, plagues that is brought down on the Egyptians is that the angel of death will come through and kill. It's the firstborn, right? Yes. Okay. For some reason I was like, maybe it's not, but yeah, it is. Um, Would kill the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians or of anyone that didn't have lamb's blood um, painted over their door frames. Um, And so the angel of death passed over those houses. Um, So that's where the name comes from. Um, Today, the central ritual is the Seder meal, which includes a whole bunch of different little foods um, that are used to sort of tell the story of the exile, or the exile, the exodus. Um, And these include things like matzah, which is an unleavened bread, and it's used to sort of symbolize the fact that, um, or matzah is made because they had to get up and get out of Egypt so quickly that they didn't have a chance to let their bread rise, and so they just had to take it and go. Um, but also, this includes things like a lamb shank bone and egg, bitter herbs, caroset, which is this little—it's kind of like a—it's kind of like a jam that's got like figs and apples, and um, I forget what all else is in caroset. Do you remember, Jay? Since you're all on the food thing this episode.
1: <laughs> no, I, I do not know. <laughs> what is I
0: know name? that a, um, is meant to symbolize the mortar between all the bricks um, that was mm. used to as the Jews were constructing things for the Egyptians in the story. Um, and also, and a vegetable, which can vary. Um, I was trying to find like one specific sort of vegetable that people use, and it seems like people use onions and potatoes a lot, but there's no sort of unifying everybody uses this vegetable. So if you look online, seder plates kind of look like um, they remind me of like deviled egg plates, kind of, or some of them do. Mm. They've got like little sort of, uh, it's like concave, yeah, little concave sections for each one of these things. This seder plate is used in um, addition to the Agadah, which is just a agada is just a story, right? I mean, it's not yeah. like
1: it's just the basically the retelling of the story of Exodus. Generally, it's become, well, I don't know actually when it started. My guess is probably in the 60s or 70s, but it could have been before that to have adaptations of Lagada. So anything that is relevant at that year or in time that is social justice related, typically there is a version for that. And you can read that instead. So like when Black Lives Matter movement really started, there were a lot that were on that. You can find one for women. You can find them for,
0: I mean, you name the social justice issue. There's probably one out there. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so I guess we're at the point where we get to talk about our favorite, favorite version of the story.
1: (laughs) Yes, we are. So So I will just say that Pat, like, I'm not Jewish. I have no Jewish ties, although I did try to convert to Judaism as a young child. And I was told by my mother incorrectly that um, converting would not make me one of God's chosen people. So that definitely traumatized me for a really long time. Damn.
0: She was wrong, but it's you know, I'm fine. we don't need to go into that. Just put not- your mom on blast to all 14 of our listeners. I know. And she listens. So <laughs> <Whatever>. <laughs> sorry, mom. Um,
1: so uh, clearly I enjoy religion and religious things. So when I was in college, I was able to, I went to a Seder and found it really interesting. Had a, it was long, but I had a really good time. So I've always kind of, and I'd made the connection. I saw the movie The Prince of Egypt as a child and I do enjoy the movie. And I was like, Whoa, this is the same thing, which is, I feel like I could have made that connection much sooner, but I didn't have a Jewish background or a lot of exposure to, to Jewish things. So I'm sure that's why the connection was a little late. Anyway, post that I kind of started a, like in the spring would start watching the Prince of Egypt. Typically in college when I would hear, Oh, you know, Passover was coming up. You'd see the signs promoting all the dinners on campus for the various, I went to school in New York. So there were a lot of Jews on my campus. Um, so I started watching it, and then in grad school, I think I was taking a class in the, the Judaism or it was when we were in Molly's class. I do not remember, but I was listening to the soundtrack, and I think I told you about it. And you it, was, like,
0: it was when we were in Molly's class.
1: And you were like, I'm going to start watching it. And so then I started watching it, and we started texting each other. And so now it is a tradition that we have that every year for Passover – we watch The Prince of Egypt and text each other. And it's something that I look forward to every year. Like, I'm so excited to get to watch The Prince of Egypt. <laughs> so it has now become, even though we like do, don't do any of the other things, we commemorate
0: the Passover with The Prince of Egypt, which is really fun. And if you haven't seen The Prince of Egypt, it's great. You really should watch it. Yeah, it won a lot of awards. It's one of... Like I would say, the best DreamWorks is
1: necessarily known for their animated films, but their two best animated films are Shrek
0: and The Prince of Egypt. So I was going to say it's a good pre-Shrek DreamWorks film.
1: Yes, and then I will say the other cool thing about that I learned is recent. Well, when I was in took a class in Judaism, is that. The prince of Egypt, the producers and writers spent a really long time trying to get the story right. So in addition to looking at the Bible, they also looked at uh, Mishnah and and Midrash. And so that is why in the story, Moses is, as a child, he is thought to be the brother or half-brother of Ramesses, Mm -hmm. the Egyptian king or pharaoh. Sure. who would then turn on him and that's who he goes against. That is straight out of the Midrash. That is not in the Bible. So they use a lot of sourcing to try to get it as textually close to Jewish tradition as possible. They also use several names of God. So Elohim and Adonai are used in the film, which Christian listeners or people who are not Jewish may not be familiar with those names, but those are two of several names that for God that Jewish people use. And so the fact that those are in there is really cool. And there's also a lot of Hebrew in the film, which was really cool to listen to after you've like studied about Judaism. You've picked up all these Jewish word or Hebrew words to be able to hear them in the film. But it's a remarkable movie. It's fantastic. I'm very much looking forward to to 2020 when we get to watch it again. And I can't say enough about it. It has a really great cast too. I didn't realize who all was in it. Yeah, like Val Kilmer's in it. Sandra Bullock, Mm -hmm. uh, Martin Short. Mm -hmm. Jeff Goldblum, Steve Martin, Steve Martin, Ralph Fiennes, yes, uh, and then there's a the wonderful song, When You Believe, that's performed by Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston, so it's just a good time all around, and yeah, Prince that's of you a Good. One. you should check it out, we are not sponsored by DreamWorks or the Prince oh of Oh my dip. god, but if well, we could you- be definitely should check it
0: out <laughs> you should check it out and you should email dreamworks and tell after you email us you should email dreamworks and tell them that we talked about it and yes. that we are the best promoters of this movie that's yeah. 20 years old
1: <laughs> um, and it has a great soundtrack i mean beyond that song it really does, it does. so
0: kosher. why don't we talk
1: about kosher stuff
0: we need to talk about kosher. I don't know how we didn't think because this is I know why we didn't think of kosher, because there's a lot to talk about with Judaism. This is um, true. So. So kosher is I think something people are probably pretty familiar with. I think that's the thing about Judaism, too, is like a lot of people are like or they have been exposed to it, but they don't necessarily like know a lot of the details or the background. Um, so kosher essentially is the dietary laws for Judaism. Um, And so like we talked about the dietary restrictions in Islam, there are also dietary restrictions in Judaism, um, and they include a variety of things, not eating um, shellfish, not eating uh, meat from animals with cloven hooves. So sorry, bacon and any pork products. So Kansas City barbecue, you're really screwed. And I'm trying to think what else, what is there to say about kosher?
1: Um you can't so you, there's a rule that you can't eat a calf in its mother's oh, milk so yes, that means yes, no meat yes. with cheese. Yes. Um and if you eat those you can eat meat and cheese just not at the same time. There's a separate like a certain number of hours have to pass between eating the two. So typically two um families will have one two sets of plates, one set of plates where they have meat on them and then one for dairy to keep them separate. Um, it deals with, like, and so then also the, you have kosher meat has to be blessed by
0: a rabbi. So that's a whole thing where you buy specific foods. And it's also not just about being blessed by a rabbi. It's also about the specific way in which yes, that's true. meat
1: has been, been killed,
0: processed. Yeah. Basically how the animal was killed.
1: Yes. Uh, because you can't eat blood and so all the blood has to be drained. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of other. I mean, there there are like many other things as well, but those are the probably main ones.
0: And I'm trying to think what else. What is there to say about kosher?
1: Um, you can't. So you, there's a rule that you can't eat a calf in its mother's milk. Oh, so yes, that means yes. No meat yes. with cheese. Yes. Um, and if you eat those, you can eat meat and cheese, just not at the same time. There's a separate, like a certain number of hours have to pass between eating the two. So typically. Um, families will have one, two sets of plates, one set of plates where they have meat on them and then one for dairy to keep them separate. Um, it deals with like, and so then also the, you have kosher meat has to be blessed by a rabbi. So that's a whole thing where you buy specific foods.
0: And it's also not just about being blessed by a rabbi. It's also about the specific way in which yes, that's true. it's
1: been, uh, meat's been killed,
0: processed. Yeah. Basically how the animal was killed.
1: Yes. Uh, because you can't eat blood. And so all the blood has to be drained. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think of other, I mean, there, there are like many other things as well, but those are the probably main ones. Anything else you want to talk about, about Judaism? Well, anything else you have to talk about? Okay. No, I'm all set.
0: Um, We hope that you like what we're doing and that you are bearing with us in our massive hiatuses between episodes. (laughs) We hope that you're being forgiven, forgiving of that. Um, If you like what we're doing, please consider giving us a review. Um, we still have no reviews or send us an email and say that you guys are awesome. We'll read it on air. Um, you can find us on Twitter at religious lit pod and on Facebook at facebook.com slash religiously literate. You can also email us at religious lit gmail at gmail.com. Um, you can listen to us everywhere that uh, you can find podcasts pretty much. Tell your friends, tell your family.